Welcome back to the 50 to 70 podcast brought to you in association with Tree of E Coffee all over Dublin and available online. I'm here obviously with Cormac Singleton. Hello. But today we have very important guests, Oren O'Kelly, fresh from the Dakar. How are you? Yeah, thanks very much for having me on, lads. Um, probably not fresh from the Dakar. <laughs> Is fresh the wrong word? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Fatigued from yeah. the Dakar. Is fatigued the wrong word from the Dakar? Fatigued, exhausted, um, emotionally drained. Um, but we're here to tell the tale. Um, very, very happy to have made it back in one piece and made it across the finish line. Um, was an enormously tough and challenging endeavour. Um, but back here now celebrating with everyone that got behind it and everyone that's been incredibly supportive since this was all just a big dream you many didn't, months ago. You didn't just do the Dakar. You decided to make it even easier for yourself by doing it on two wheels. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. so you are, first of all, for, for, for those people who maybe have just heard of the Dakar but don't really know what it is, in, in a nutshell, how would you describe it? Um, it's possibly, arguably, um, the ultimate test of human and machine. Um, it's probably the most difficult... Um, motorsport endurance event on the planet because of the challenge because of the terrain um, but because it's what it's basically designed to do it's basically designed to test um, an athlete from a motorsport perspective and then the equipment as well and the amount of equipment failures and people that go out through injury or pure exhaustion are enormous I think this year the finish race or finish rate was less than 50% so just, just to give you perspective and this is an event that people pump especially on the four-wheel side, multi-multi-million dollar budgets into, um, but just the challenging terrain and weather and endurance elements, some of the distances are enormous. Like one of the race days this year was 875 kilometers. Um, and this is entirely off-road as in, well. So this is, you know, this isn't 800 kilometers on a track. Yeah. This is some of the most inhospitable terrain on earth. Exactly. They find the most challenging, most technical sections of massive rocks, um, the sand's so soft you can't walk in and um, some of the stuff they put us through even looking back on I remember turning over my shoulder and looking back at some of the stuff just in awe that I managed to make it through it let alone um, to do it at a competitive um, race pace and to keep the the equipment whether you're in a bike or in a car in good condition as well and um, that's probably one of the most challenging elements is just to know when to push and not when to push to save your equipment if it's got to last we raced for 14 days this year you really have to be strategic in how you preserve your equipment and not abuse it and know where that fine line is for a competitive element. So you've always been on two wheels, right? That was, I mean, for, for people to go, hang on, this guy's done the Dakar. How do you end up doing the Dakar? But like, let, let's go right back to the start. So like, were two wheels always your thing? Yeah, so I, I grew up with four brothers and we all uh, had the fortunate opportunity to race motocross. So we raced motocross quite competitively until we were about 11 or 12 and then, to be honest, it was very much packed in, mm. um, interest-led other, other, other places, um, and got into other sports, rugby, whatever other team sports, um, bit of mixed martial arts and everything in between. Um, but four years ago, I definitely felt there was an itch that I needed to scratch. And I was probably off the motorbike competitively, for sure, for more than 15 years. Okay. Um, but really wanted to get back into motorbike racing and see where it went. Okay. I had this big dream and idea of going to Dakar, and I remember telling it to some close friends, and being laughed at okay, to say right. the least who's laughing what? now <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> with your metal around your neck um, so that yeah so was being obviously being like, I've ridden enduro and done stuff like that like, I know about the Dakar but was that always that was the one thing where like Dakar someday would be 
that was the that was the kind of dream. Yeah, for sure. There's something magical about it. Yeah. Um, from from seeing it as a kid in on on television to to reading books about it, it was just this foreign, wild race that yeah. was nothing at that time, especially nothing even was in nothing reach touches of it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just, it, it, yeah, you got Le Mans, which is okay. There are there are other twenty four hour races, but that car is kind of. It was just this wild expedition of an event um, that was different every year. You were really out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Um, like there's there's inc- incredibly other challenging, particularly closed circuit or short circuit type racing like Le Mans mm. or um, some of the other, like if you look at Baja 1000, but just the spread of Dakar over such a distance, over such a period of time. Um, there's a lot of races you can go into with a bit of luck and have you know one or two good days. But with something like Dakar, I think luck catches up on everyone there and you're bound to have your share of it. And it's just the dose that you get. I, yeah, think I mean, if you're in Le Mans, you've with. got two other drivers with you in the car that can, you know, maybe carry you a little bit, whatever. But uh, yeah, especially exactly. on a bike, that's it. You're on your own. So it, how do you, how do you do Like, how do you start? Like what's, okay, you go, right. I've got to do Dakar. Yeah. What, what's the first thing you do or where, yeah. What, what's your kind of day one of getting to your Dakar putting it together um, I, I had the fortunate opportunity to, to, to sell a small business that I had here um, which helped enormously like any motorsport event um, you're not going to get very far without any funding um, so put an enormous amount of uh, my own private savings in, into this nearly all of it to be honest um, to get it set up and running um, but I moved out to the Middle East because Dakar moved Dakar was originally um, from Paris and France obviously to Dakar in Senegal that's where the famous name comes from and it did a lot of different variations. It even went to Cairo. It went to South Africa one year. Um, and then in the, I think it was 2008 or 2009. They went moved to, to South, South America. America. Yeah. yeah. So the South American governments, um, particularly Argentina and Chile, got behind it massively and hosted the race in some wild environments there. There was a massive factor of altitude mm. that a lot of people had to battle with there. That yeah, yeah. Put people um, in their place in, in, <laughs> in different challenges. And then in 2018, it moved to Saudi Arabia. Hmm. And Saudi Arabia itself, a lot of people would think, is just a big desert. And I thought the very same thing. And I'd actually spent some time there and just thought it was a, night, a, a hot, warm desert. But it's incredibly vast. It's more like the Americas. There's places in there that are absolutely freezing. Like some of the racing this year was minus two at night. Oh, really? All the way up to okay. 45 degrees during right. the day. Yeah. And the different uh, geographical offerings that it have as well like we were racing through uh, volcanoes where we did massive rocks um, that were the size of boulders that moved around like marbles um, in certain sections and then you have some of the most challenging soft uh, sand down in the empty quarter mm. um, which is I think it's 65,000 square kilometers of just vast emptiness the, the empty yeah. quarter yeah, like it's even the name exactly just, yeah, like there's not yeah. even roads into it yeah um, they were coming to save people with helicopters it was that remote in distances um, to snow peaked mountains and everything in between um, so the distance this year was about 8,000 kilometers which is the same distance if you were driving a straight line from Dublin to Beijing so just to give people an idea of the vast distance and we weren't and this is in two weeks yeah. over over 14 oh, days over yeah. yeah with no roads with really. no roads <laughs> like, yeah. yeah just a very simple navigation system uh, which is a huge element of it as well yeah uh, juggling the navigation because um, it's quite straightforward to try and ride a bike fast in a straight line on a flat road but when you're off road and when you're navigating and juggling that cognitive fatigue and that cognitive load being able to juggle all that and do it correctly is uh, is magical when it happens but more often than not you're stressed out because you've made a navigational mistake mm. or you get lost 
And then that time is just enormously burnt when you're trying to compete and trying to put a competitive effort in. Um, if you're, you're spending 15, 20 minutes looking for a waypoint or yeah. lost, um, to make that time up, to drive a car, to drive a bike 20 minutes faster is nearly impossible. So you would have been, in terms of the, the fitness and the training that you kind of have to do, like where, so like you, you've, you've gone, okay, we're going to do it. Like, do you have to get an entry in early or is it sort of like, is there like an acceptance sort of way of, do you, have you got to qualify to do this race? Yeah, exactly. So I kind of bring you back a little bit. I, I moved out to the Middle East. Um, there's an enormous amount of motorsport out there. It's like the guy here. Mm. Um, there's an enormous amount of funding in it from the government side. And it's just pushed enormously through sponsorship and through everything else. And for nine or 10 months a year there, they're blessed with really good weather and unbelievable terrain. Um, there's a huge amount of vast areas where you can just go out and play around. Um, that just isn't available in Ireland or, or any countries in Europe nowadays yeah. with regulations and insurance and everything else that comes in. Um, so there's a huge racing scene there, but also a huge opportunity to train. Mm. And with the amount of racing that was going on there and Dakar just on, on the doorstep of the Emirates, I thought this was a really good place to set myself up, to be able to train 12 months a year and to be able to race competitively, to build into these events and to try and put together a package with the team and to try and work towards getting a qualification for Dakar. Um, but Dakar itself, um, there's thousands of applicants every year and they pick just over 100 people. Um, and that's based on your results uh, from the competitive standpoint. So Dakar okay. itself is one of six races. That's part of the World Championship. Um, the second round of the World Championship which is actually in Abu Dhabi at the end of February. So they've barely given us a month rest uh, to get back into it. And I knew that race was in Abu Dhabi, or sorry, was in, was in Abu Dhabi. And it was going to be, if you competed well at that, you'd probably get a very strong qualification for Dakar. Mm -hmm. um, so I managed to do that the two years before I went to Dakar. I um, actually qualified after the first year, but didn't have the funds, the package of the preparation together. Yeah. So postponed it um, and went this year. Mm. and went with just a really strong package but I looked under every stone I could um, anyone that would talk to me about going to Dakar on a motorbike what I needed to bring what I needed to prepare was just like an absolute sponge absorbed it as much as possible um, and networked hugely in that area trying to understand who the top teams were who who was involved with the car teams and last year I actually had the privilege of um, volunteering for Audi oh. and that sounds super nice and sexy but I was actually cleaning camper van toilets and driving a camper van okay so you're like a runner <laughs> yeah. for like you gotta do whatever exactly yeah, yeah. yeah but learned so much having hands on the ground experience at Dakar and um, when I went back this year then just that idea of ex of expectations of what was going on and um, from an organizational standpoint I felt I was light years ahead mm. and got to meet uh, and chat to so many different bikers about you know why are you bringing two pairs of gloves why have you got three different pairs of goggles and why have you set the, your bike up like this? Why have you changed the suspension like that? So all these technical little things that when you just look at them, you think, ah, like you could probably get away with not doing that. But all those 1% add up incredibly, incredibly yeah. to a vast, vast, huge amount. Yeah. yeah. And whether it's a 1% in comfort or 1% in performance, um, when you're going to be on the bike for 8,000 kilometers, that 1% is an enormous amount in terms of what it delivers. So you get acceptors. A... How do they tell you? B, what's it like when you get accepted? <laughs> so uh, they, they, they make it quite challenging that you have to put down a 4,000 euro deposit when you want to put an application in. So that really separates the men from the boys. Right. <laughs> Straight away. Who's, uh, that's, yeah. Financially prepared for it or, or who's not. Um, so I did that last year, mm. received the application um, and just really felt underprepared in terms of mentally what I'd done, what 
I was setting out to try and achieve in that period of time. And they do that, I think it's in May or June. So you have a huge amount of time between then um, to get everything else together. But I just didn't have, I didn't have a bike. I didn't have uh, the support team in place. And I really just didn't feel like I had the experience. Um, so postponed it for another year. Mm. Applied again, got the application together and then went with a really strong plan, um, especially commercially trying to get sponsorships and partnerships on board. Um, that was probably equally as challenging as the event itself. Yeah. It requires a big heavy budget to go, even on yeah. a bike. Yeah. Um, so that was a huge juggling act and, and learning all about that industry of sports marketing and motorsports marketing and how you know you can provide a huge amount of value through a story. And luckily being from Ireland, um, have huge amount of support from people. Yeah. Um, and it was a little bit easier, I think, than, than other nationalities so to get everyone. Shout back. out to all your sponsors. Feel yeah. free to, <laughs> to thank them all. So who, who, who are your big backers? Yeah, so there's a, a gentleman called Michael Safford um, who got, I think he found me on, on initially on Instagram and he um, owns a company called Safford Bonded and their big uh, consumer product is a Driscoll's Irish Whiskey and they came on massively. They really bought into my dream um, took a huge risk on me, took a huge risk on my idea. And um, I, th I think we're both very happy with how everything worked out, um, but brought their brand um, into the motorsport spotlight and hopefully raised enormous awareness through their daring uh, spirit that's in the brand with my daring story of going out, getting after it and putting myself on the line of uh, something very risky, but um, delivered the goods home. So it's so very happy uh, that that relationship worked out so well. Yeah, that's pretty good. So... Okay, you've you're you get accepted then. What a what was that like? Like was it just elation or was it okay? We're gonna go and do this. The fear of the having to do it now. Go, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, oh no, it's yes. What have I signed up for? Exactly. Yeah, I, I probably didn't tell anyone for a day or two. Um, then told the girlfriend, um, who's incredibly supportive of the whole thing as well. Uh, she's really bought into the whole idea and understands the the I think significance of it. Uh, it's not just messing around in the field with scramblers, <laughs> as, yeah. as, as I think was probably yeah. the first perception when she saw uh, the motocross bikes. Um, but kept it to myself for a few days and then really thought, is this something I want to do? And if I commit to this, I really need to follow it through to the very end. Mm. Um, and then began just working my ass off as much as possible, trying to raise as much awareness about Dakar and my participation in it and trying to get buy-in from journalists, yeah. uh, from the media and everything else. Um, read a couple of different books on motorsport sponsorship. A lot of them were kind of focused on an American perspective, um, but gained a huge amount of value and learned a lot more than, you know, sponsorship isn't just selling a few square inches on a bike or a car. Sure, it's really yeah. about how you can deliver value through the story, what we're doing, and nowadays with the power of media and social media, um, how you can increase awareness and bring a lot more value to a brand than just, hey, look, I've stuck yeah. this hey, I'm, I'm doing this. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, the, the, the hook or the interest is that you're the first Irish person in how many exactly. years? Exactly, in, in almost 15 years. In almost 15 years. Yeah, okay. Philip Noon went in 2010. Yeah. And I think there's been about 14 or 15 Irish competitors. And as I understand, I think uh, the medal we have here today is number seven. Yes, yeah. That's, okay. that's been delivered. So that gives you an idea of the challenge of it as well. Mm. Um, this year, there was less than a 50% completion rate. Um, so I like to think of it particularly in, in racing is it's more of an expedition particularly the first year i like yeah. it like to think of it as comparing it to climbing mount everest or something um just to get to the top and back on the first year is also ever important um and did it at quite a competitive rate this year um i'm coming 18th now in the world championship on the bikes so really happy with that and i feel like i still left a little bit more in the tank each day okay because i realized the importance 
of just finishing. Um, it's not about, yeah. It, so it's it, that kind of like restraint of just get home big time and, and get it get it to the line and a lot of the top 20 riders are on big contracts to push and push and push mm. and for them to crash out if they were coming top 10 is uh, more acceptable than to finish in really? the 30s okay. or the 40s as well so in terms of i mean physically I, like i can't even imagine how tough this is but how what is your training like when you're doing it when you're building up to dakar because this isn't just like doing a race weekend yeah. where you're, yeah, you're doing like a, a hair and hounds, yeah. you're doing whatever, you know, you're doing one of these like quick enduros. So what's the sort of timeline like and what are you doing and how much of it is physical and how much yeah. is mental? Like, is there, is yeah. there a balance between the two? Huge amounts. So, so great questions. I'll, I'll start off by dropping a few facts and figures. Yeah. Um, I started Dakar and I was about, 87 kilos mm. when I, the day I finished that car was about 79 okay. just in terms of calories burnt and energy expended and um, a lot of people think riding a motorcycle and in, in some ways is and um, you're just sitting on a bike and you're just twisting your throttle most of the time we're riding these bikes and um, they're about 200 kilos when they're full of fuel and you're wrestling them at speeds of up to 160 kilometers an hour um, you're barely sitting down when you are sitting down uh, your your ass is used specifically to manipulate the suspension yeah. to do a jump or to control the bike and um, so you're constantly squatting um, so each day we're burning anywhere between five or six to eight or nine thousand calories on the bike so it's very similar to doing an Ironman every day yeah. uh, for 14 days in a row with with a day break in the middle um, so the energy expended is absolutely enormous and I've tracked all this and have um, a Garmin watch and a Polar eight your, heart rate your system. Strava must be like <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. people must be unfollowing you when I see, yeah, your, yeah, yeah. When I see your Strava <laughs> um, and when I get into this I sort of nerd out on all this stuff and try and do as much research as possible um, and identified that there's a coach a, f- a French a gentleman named Fabien Rabo who looks after um, the top five winners from last year and I just slid into his DMs on Instagram thinking, what's the chance this guy's going to get back to me? Don't ask, um, don't get. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I've let, led a lot of decisions in life like that. You need to go after it, you need to ask. And I was 100% sure he wasn't even going to reply to me. But he was like, hey, no problem. Let's hop on a Zoom call. Um, so burnt his ear off for an hour. Thought mm-hmm. I got enormous value out of him about how to prepare for this. Um, and his full-time job is actually head of performance for a Tour de France cycling team. Um, and then he also works for Red Bull and looks after his top Red Bull athletes in Dakar. Um, so burned his ear off for a full hour on a Zoom call, um, asking about preparation, asking about hydration, types of training, types of endurance training. And then at the end of it, um, as just a bit of a laugh, I was like, oh, would you ever consider taking on just an amateur rookie as a client? And um, he was like, absolutely. And gave me, offered me a rate, which is the same price as a Fly Fit Gym membership. So yeah. I was okay. absolutely shook and in shock yeah. and offered to pay from up, year, up front for the year immediately to get his buy yeah. and then he provides me with all my training programs on an app called training peaks and um, it's usually about two to three hours of training every day and um, either on the bike off the bike uh, most of it's on uh, like a stationary bike or a push bike okay and um, but it's all about training in, yeah. in different heart rates zones. just on rollers and just oh so just to keep your heart rate at a set at, at a set level at, at different zones yeah and to be honest the training i was doing beforehand from youtube and the internet and whatever else was just like really hard intense hour-long sessions and what I found is a lot of his training was actually a lot easier, mm. but it was about building capacity and building a fuel tank. Yeah. And it stood to me enormously. I did uh, one of the world championship rounds before I started working with him. And on the, th- the second or third day, I was exhausted and just kept pushed through the, the fourth and fifth day till, till the finish. 
Um, and then the second year after I'd been training with him for about six months, did the same five day event and I was roaring to go at the end okay. of day five. Yeah. Um, so just easy, easy. I got this. Yeah. 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 Maybe not easy, yeah. but yeah. I still felt I had a lot okay. more in the fuel tank. Yeah. yeah. And then he upped the ante this year with preparing for Dakar. And I learned so much about nutrition and fuel and hydration and vitamins and everything else and realized that like, it's such a sport of preparation, like the way I trained for it and the way I trained with him. Um, I wouldn't say it made Dakar easier, but it definitely removed um, my most limiting factor um, from not being fitness or fatigue or energy. Um, just he gave me some ability to have depth. And it's specific, specifically for rally racing, a lot of times you're in sections where your heart rate spikes enormously through sure. the day. Yeah. And then you need to level out and then it spikes again. Right. So it's nearly like high intensity interval training. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Over so a it's how you of, can get your heart rate back down and back to a rest. Exactly. Yeah, like yeah. treating it like a rev limiter on a car. Yeah thinking i've got another eight hours to do today if my heart rate's bouncing at 180 beats per minute i'm gonna burn through can't, all this can't fuel do this. Yeah, 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 yeah 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 and be absolutely knackered running on empty so i think that kind of covers um a lot of the physical and the preparation side of it um then from a mental side of it um i have huge passion about sports and performance psychology um i went back to college and did a master's in that for two years and i've just finished a uk accreditation to be a sports and performance psychologist um so sort of was my own guinea pig with that right preparation for it and with Dakar racing and with rally racing, um, a huge amount of it is on navigation. Mm. Um, so when you look at the cars in rally racing, you have the co-driver, sure, yeah. uh, the navigator who sits beside the driver, who does all the navigating. And I think it's a little bit cheating in the cars anyway, because the bikes start first. So yeah. on about 60 or 70% of the, the terrain, there's a lot of bike tracks. Yes, yeah. So they Most of the time in the right direction. So yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. cross-referencing. Yeah. If you're following one single bike track, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. potentially you're yeah, going yeah. the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. Whereas on the bikes, it's a lot more spread out, especially when you're running in the top 30 or top 40. Mm. Um, you really have to be focused on your navigation. Yeah. Um, like you can have the best bike riders in the world. And you see it from a lot of other disciplines. They come from enduro, they come from motocross, and guys and, and girls that are super handy on a bike, but they can't navigate. Right, so they get okay. so lost. So it's like a whole other skill you've got to now learn. Com completely different yeah, skill. Yeah. And it's designed um, off bearing headings and trip distance. So on, on the left-hand side, I'll, I'll, I'll show you some road books as well. Mm. Um, on the left-hand side is the trip distance. So that's measured off the front wheel, the distance you're traveling. And then there's um, waypoints that you're supposed to hit. And then you have a closed GPS unit that beeps once you've hit the waypoint. Okay. And so often you can be like 180 kilometers into a stage and you can see it 180 uh, 1.2 um, there's supposed to be a waypoint and you could be riding in circles because if you've gone off on a tangent at 270 degrees and you were supposed to go off at 268 degrees um, the disparity in, in that distance uh, when you get 50k's yeah, down the when road 50k's can oh be absolutely enormous I'm getting stressed just and just to put a different element I get these... stressed when there's like two right turns on the <laughs> yeah, sat yeah, yeah, like, yeah. which one is it they're right next to each other <laughs> so it's, it's like that times 10 yeah but you have to be cool you have to be calm and have to try and remain calculated with a lot of it as well um, but just that skill of navigation itself is something I've spent two years learning and Learning how to do it is one thing. Learning how to do it when you're on a bike at yeah. 150, 160 kilometers an hour. Watching what's happening on the watching road. Watching what's changing while in front also of you watching this on in, the road. In blind. Yeah. And it does give you some hints about right. what's coming up, particularly okay. if there's dangers ahead. Just three types of warnings. Uh, there's an initial warning, which is just one exclamation mark. Um, that's not even worth noting. That's more for the cars. And then there's this, a double warning, which you should slow down for. And then a triple warning. A triple warning will kill you if you hit it fast. So you really have to slow down for that. That's nice and sobering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the double warning 
you really need to check out and, and slow down a bit. But a triple warning is like you could be going off a cliff or you could be coming from a high-speed 160-kilometer section to like massive boulders and massive rocks if you don't slow down. Um, so being able to learn this, process it, and then begin to navigate ahead as well to see what's coming and go, okay, I've got a 10-kilometer stretch here where I can let it rip in sixth gear yeah, and pick yeah. up nice pace and nice speed. But if you haven't flicked through and haven't realized that there's a cliff at the end of that or there's yeah. a massive set of rocks at the end of that, you really have to perceive all that. And to be able to juggle all that and constantly process that information is easy when you talk about a 30-minute race or an hour-long race. But when you're on the bike sometimes for 15, 16 hours, um, your brain does begin to slow down. Yeah. So trying to have awareness of um, how much fatigue or what, what point you're going to be at till you be- get fatigued and then what's going to fail on you first or what's going to begin to slow down you first is your fitness is your concentration is it something else and i think being super aware of that and i tried to do that every day understand and pick a point like when you're working any sort of job whether mm. it's like on a construction site or something your level of concentration and focus and your risk of an accident is going to be a lot higher towards the end of the day when you're beginning to fatigue and you're beginning to slow down as uh, so trying to be really aware of when's a good time to push and when's not a good time to push is so important at dakar yeah. so i mean i guess you probably do have sections though on a, on a on a route where you've got okay right I've, I've got just got to stay straight for another 30 40 k's is yeah. that a bit of a not a rest period but yeah. it's a bit like you kind of mentally just kind of you can ease off the gas a little bit and just go sit okay, down for just, a minute yes. yeah yeah you yeah. know a, a big time so you can rest kind of recuperate begin to think all right relax here a little yeah. bit and then begin to i guess go on a more of a, an eco mode i was yeah. thinking of yeah, when yeah. i was on the bike yeah. instead of going into track mode or race yeah. mode yeah, so you can yeah, yeah. switch it back in, into eco mode and just go okay now it's time to conserve energy now it's time to kind of regroup recuperate myself and just focus on what's to come or, or what's to come that's that's going to be a little bit further ahead so what? once you have your acceptance letter yeah and you've started your sponsorship search yeah do you go to the Dakar bike shop or yeah, how, how do you pick one? Yeah. Do you know, did you have one in the shed or, you know, how do you, how did you pick it? And then how did you build it or buy it? Or, you know, what's the process for picking and getting a bike? Um, so there's, I guess, many different ways to, 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 to go about this. Um, I firmly believe from all the research I've done, there's a lot of ways you can waste a lot of money trying to build a bike from scratch and everything else. Um, the KTM group, which is KTM, Husqvarna, and Gas Gas, offer, I think it's limited to 60 units every year. They build um, basically like a Formula One spec rally bike. Um, that's retails, I think, just over 35 or 36,000 euro. As the, the 450. The, the 450 yeah, rally yeah. replica. Yeah. yeah. And um, they're really, really hard to get your hands on. Um, and I managed to pick one of them up, um, lightly used. Hadn't, hadn't done a Dakar, but had done a lot of training from James Hillier. Um, who did Dakar last year who I got very friendly with he's um, the third fastest man ever on the Isle of Man TT um, so an absolute legend in his own right from, from motorsport and from Isle of Man racing and got into Dakar racing as his next um, sort of uh, challenge um, but managed to pick up his bike uh, last year did a couple of smaller rallies on it did a full refresh on it this year uh, took the thing completely apart nuts and bolts um, but these bikes are built like Formula One cars, yeah, yeah. full of carbon fiber, full of titanium, um, and they're really built 
to handle the abuse and challenge uh, that Dakar has. Yeah, this this isn't like the four fifty you buy in the uh, in the KTM shop. Not that it's not a bad bike, but yeah. the, these are like literally turnkey factory spec bikes. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of similar to looking at um, cars when you look at say like an M three that you see on the street and then an M three GT three yeah spec yeah. that you see on a track. They look pretty similar, but once you get under the bonnet, the materials used. Um, the um, the manufacturing accuracies, the tolerances are are chalk and cheese mm. different. Um, I think you could buy m- multiples of a regular uh, four fifty for the price of a rally rep four fifty. Um, but the the bike I have then is a Husqvarna four fifty, and um, which is a, you can actually order here in Ireland uh, through one of my sponsors, uh, Nick Craigie, um, from CCM, showing you around the corner. Um, so these bikes are available. They're very hard to get your hands on. You really need to be proving. Um, to them that you're going to be using it for something like the Dakar or one of the other world championship brands so it's not even a case of I've got a lot of money I want to buy one there's almost it's like buying a hypercar you've got to pass that they exactly yeah they want to see um, I guess a bit of customer or brand loyalty but that you're actually going to be using the product for what it is as well I know a few bikes have ended up in collections and people have used them and there's zero hours on them so I think they're really trying to take a stance against that because apparently they manufacture the bike at cost apparently they don't make Really, a one percent margin okay. on the bike. So this is more for the sport. More um, for the sports. More for the purists. More to keep um, the brand and the um, just specifically for the competition. Um, so it's an unusual opportunity. And to own a bike now, I'm super privileged to have got my hands on one and looking after it. Um, Are you going to keep it? Or? Yeah, for yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay, right. I've got a few more rounds of World Championship to do. I'd love to get my hands on a new one ahead of next season. Mm. Um, just just there is stuff that start, slowly starts to go wrong with them. And just with the demands of something like the Dakar, just to try and mitigate any mechanical or electrical um, issue, your best bet is just getting the newest bike you can get. But they've been making the exact same bike for seven years now, and they're due to bring out a completely new uh, from-the-ground designed-up model um, that's supposed to come out this year. So I had the lucky opportunity to test that as well. That's through some of my friends that race professionally, and the bike is like chalk and cheese different. Really? Okay, Uh, big difference. So it's like completely new model or completely new generation and um, so super excited to see if I can get my hands on one of them for the upcoming year uh, obviously you've got to have a lot of mechanical like uh, potential for mechanical to go ha- to happen mid-stage you've got to be able to fix it potentially on, on the go so were you already fairly clued up when it comes to bodging a repair on the move or do, you know do you have to learn a lot of specific things and what what have you got on the bike to help you do that yeah, great question. So it's probably a bit of the Dunning-Kruger effect. When I started learning about it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is simple. This is a bike engine. This is this. That's this. The more I learned, um, this curve sort of went up and then dropped dramatically down when I realized that there is just so much to learn about the bikes and so many different things that can go wrong. Um, so enormous amount of that time, probably the, the last four years that I've been preparing for it, specifically the last two years, um, has been a major focus on the mechanical side. And um, like that, you can have the best mechanics in the world with the best race room in the world. If you're 400 kilometers into a stage with 300 kilometers to go, that mechanic is not going to helicopter out to see you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nine times That's out of it. 10, we didn't even have a phone signal. Right. So you couldn't even make contact with them. So being able to diagnose a problem on the stage or the race route and come up with a creative solution is so important. Mm. Especially when we are in areas where um, the bike receives a lot of damage. Um, like on the last day I had to replace, um, we had these big, thick carbon fiber skid plates, um, which when I first saw them, I thought, oh, that's cool. That looks nice. Yeah. It's carbon fiber, but really learned the importance of it this year. Um, and my one was absolutely butchered and penetrated with holes in it. 
on the 10th stage um, and had to replace it for the 11th stage, which was the second last day. And I'm not 99%, I'm 100% sure I would have had a mechanical failure if I hadn't replaced that carbon fiber skid plate because of the abuse it just took landing on big rocks and boulders. Um, So just having the awareness to know, okay, that's butchered. Mm. We've we've got to replace that. We've got to put that on. Um, But the tools we keep, we keep an enormous amount of tools on the bike that you strategically place uh, for weight distribution around on like little boxes and little areas where you can put batches in. And so you have pretty much a full set of tools to completely dismantle the bike and a lot of spare parts as well. Um, Like fuel pumps is something that often quite goes. So we have a fuel pump that we keep in a certain area, replacement levers, brake levers, uh, foot and and, uh, clutch levers, you'll keep on the bike as well. So if you have a small incident or accident and your clutch is broken at the top, um, you can replace that on the go. And then a few electronic um, or electric uh, replacement equipment as well, like fuses and the likes. Um, but just being able to diagnose that is something that was hugely intimidating before. Mm. But just getting stuck in and taking a hands-on approach, I've learned an enormous amount. By no means a mechanic, but I feel like I I, I kind of have enough knowledge. You're not going to get stuck get to somewhere now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what does your pit crew yeah. look like? And do they follow you each day, or do you have a a crew set at each stage? Or yes, yeah, so uh, great question. It's the Dakar is designed as basically a big moving circus. Um, so you have your support crews, which are, um, I r- raced on a team with two other competitors this year. Um, unfortunately, one of the competitors crashed out and broke his foot on uh, the second day. So we, we, we lost him. Um, but we shared one mechanic and then one support um, crew as well. So it was a team of, of two support that followed us around. And they basically drove a mobile workshop that went from camp to camp or pits and in, at Dakar, it's called a bivouac, which I think is the French word for camp. Yeah. Um, and that followed us all the way around. So we'd race 800 kilometers off-road, and they'd often be driving on the road to the next camp. Sometimes we beat them there. Sometimes they'd beat us there. And they have to set up and break down a full workshop every single night to work on the bikes. We did a good bit of work ourselves as well, um, just with budgets and the setup that we had. We, we didn't have a mechanic each, which is quite common for different teams. Um, so we do a lot of the simple work. And the mechanic would help tremendously um, with doing a lot of the more technical work or doing work that would require more attention and hours. But to get off the bike and to have a mechanic there is 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 absolutely incredible. Like it's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. Just knowing that if your bike did take a few knocks or dings or dents um, to specific areas, that someone was there with a fresh brain, ready to rock and roll, ready to work on your bike. Um, so it's really, really lucky to have been in a position to have a mechanic like that that can help at the end of the day. So... Day one, stage one. Yeah. <laughs> what talk, like? What is it like? How does it feel when you're know you're going to be lining up on that bike? You've done all the prep. You're trained. You're match fit. You've you know you've you've probably had a, a pretty sleepless night the night before. Mm. Like Tom's this firmly twiddles. Yeah, yeah thumbs yeah. twiddles. You know, you've made sure you've cleared your browser history. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> like so what what's kind of you're getting on the bike and that's it. You're lining up on the on start line. What what's going through your head? Yeah, it was and, and are, feel free, there's no shame here. Are yeah. you absolutely shitting yourself? <laughs> Yeah, it was um, it was magical just to get to the start line. I remember yeah. coming up there, unloading the bike with my name on it, with uh, sponsors that had gotten behind this big dream on it. it was like an absolute childhood dream just yeah. to get there. It's like I, it's happening. It's really it's happening. happening. Yeah. yeah, getting through scrutineering, 
and we arrived at the race four days before the first race day and we'd scrutineering administration uh, there was a day with a lot of press and media and then there was a uh, qualification day which we basically do a prologue um everyone's qualified that that's at the race but that basically sets the starting order so okay. the order starts in three minute intervals then it goes on to two minute intervals one minute intervals depending on your position and um, so that qualifying day was 120 kilometer loop um, 30 kilometers off-road competitiveness and then 90 kilometers uh, there and back um, but just getting to that was enormous being able to mm. get there qualify get my position I think it was 47th to 48th um, to kind of incredible. get your eye in so exactly to speak, and was, yeah. was kind of nice because it took the pressure away then from the first day um, but the first day was incredible setting up there um, went out of the gate way too hot right um, and <laughs> I heard legends and stories and there's so many different rumors you're constantly hearing at Dakar. Um, the day one was always incredibly tough and I think the first refuel was 220 or 230 kilometers into the day. And honestly, that was some of the handiest racing I've ever had in my entire life. Really fast, really high speed, was riding with a really good pace with really good lads and stopped at the fuel stop, probably like top 30, maybe top 40, thinking like, this is unbelievable. Mm. This is my dreams all coming together. Um, that came to a very swift end. After the first fuel stop, they put us through um, a volcanic area of Saudi Arabia where there was these boulders, um, like much bigger than footballs, like the size of nearly a Swiss ball. And every single one of them moved. The only way I can describe it as is trying to ride like a bicycle on ice. Okay, um, okay. I must have dropped the bike 40, 50 times. Uh, my confidence was absolutely shattered and really, really thought I'd did not belong there at all. Um, I spent two hours pushing, picking, pulling the bike uh, through a 50 kilometer section, um, which is what, less than 25 kilometers an hour average speed on bikes that were supposed to ride at 140 kilometers yeah. an hour. Was 100% sure I was lost with the navigation. Um, got to the end of that 50 kilometer stage and my GPS beeped to tell me I'd hit a waypoint. Um, oh so I, I got to find a bit <laughs> of reassurance. Thinking, should I'm actually on the right track here. Yeah. Why haven't I seen anyone for, for when, two hours? When this is happening, you're on your so you're on your own. There's not like there's another riders within. No. You are literally on your own. I, I'd caught a few riders in that section, and one or two riders had passed me. Um, that obviously had unbelievable experience, but and to my understanding, and I'd still argue with other people this to today, that type of riding and and, and and training is extremely hard enduro or trials bike. Trying okay. to do it on a rally bike, <laughs> yeah, yeah, was just like. Uh, like trying to nearly take a an M3 up a up a uh, off road off road yeah, yeah on an off road yeah, yeah. course, but that's what Dakar is yeah. And I came back to the bivouac that evening almost in tears, thinking I'm underprepared for this. Mm. My confidence is absolutely shattered. I was rattled more than anything else. Yeah. Um. We started. Or we we had a lucky opportunity to film a documentary. So a a young lad uh, uh, from Mayo. Um. Eamon came out with us and filmed it all and I did I think very honest interview with how I felt <laughs> right. um, from that but confidence was absolutely shattered when I got back to the bivouac and I started chatting to my teammates that had done two Dakars each and to see the look on their face they looked like they'd been in a war zone as well um, one of them was a good bit ahead of me and one of them was quite far behind me I realised that everyone else was in the same position okay, so it's not found just you. huge amount of comfort in that but still, um, the confidence was absolutely shattered. Like the speed I was riding at at the end of the day, I was probably rattled if you saw me. You could just yeah. think I was riding so much slower through sections that I just wasn't confident in. Um, but just had to 
uh, buckle down and bite, bite into it and pick up the pieces of the confidence and find confidence in the second day and the third day and then building, begin build, building all that back up again and then found better positions, better um, pace and just really begin building the confidence together um, which is something I didn't expect at, at Dakar but I think now looking back on it that's what Dakar is designed to do yeah. it's designed to change and test and throw curveballs at all the different competitors throughout the whole um, event like listening to some of the top guys that were running top 5 and top 10 they all had very similar experiences which right. was really reassuring to know yes. that they were as rattled as I was um, in a way I don't think they went through it as, as slow and it probably didn't knock their confidence as much but they really really struggled and to hear that each of them struggled put me in a much more rested position that we thought okay we're all in somewhat the same playing field here um, just need to pick up the pieces and take each day as it comes but to finish that first day and know that I had another 13 days of racing to go and do some days up to 875 kilometers 16 17 hour days um, was not a nice feeling mm-hmm. um, but had to push through it and just had to focus on what's my next goal here what's the next step what's the next kilometer yeah. and just slowly build and chip away at it not looking at the big mountain Did, as a whole there is there any it strikes me that there's no sort of psychology or bravado about this like yeah. all the it's not like one rider isn't coming in and go, oh that was easy that was you know, today was <laughs> yeah. the thought is everyone just kind of like yeah, yeah that was like there seems to be a, a, a sort of a camaraderie there's competition but there's mm. also a camaraderie there huge like, camaraderie yeah that everyone knows how tough this is mm-hmm. and there's no sort of shame in going yeah <laughs> <laughs> like i know i'd be crying in a corner somewhere <laughs> but like yeah yeah and, and i think um it's become such a such a media event now as well there's so many cameras on the course that there's probably a video of every single rider dropping the bike going over yeah. the bars hitting the deck a few times in some of the tough sections so there's there's no chance for people to kind of uh, spoof or, or, to, or to man up mm. about it but there's a huge sense of teamwork even though it's an individual sport if a rider has an off or an accident and um, that actually happened as well just before refuel um, another rider had a bad off that I stopped with for 20 minutes to call a helicopter to um, which is quite a rattling experience seeing someone knocked out or concussed mm. just a friendly reminder or not even friendly reminder but just yeah. a small reminder of how dangerous the sport can could be. be you it could be whatever, exactly yeah. yeah um but there's a huge amount of everyone looks out for each other out there mm. and we're in such remote areas of the world um that you really only have each other if someone has a big off or a big accident um a helicopter will be there within five to ten minutes but more often than not it's another competitor that stops for them uses the equipment the safety equipment to call mm. for a helicopter yeah and waits by their side just to make sure they're okay and yeah. hands it over to medics and you usually get your time rewarded back for that as well. I was just going to ask, like, because this is still a time to bet, like, how, do, how is that sort of judged? But they, it's kind of, that's taken into account. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolute given. Like, you'd okay. be very, you'd be in a very unusual situation if they wouldn't give you your time back. Sure. It's, okay. it's normally goes if, if someone has an off, the first and second competitors to stop, um, and everyone stops. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, w- yeah. Will be awarded their full time back. Yeah. So yeah. unless you're the third yeah. or fourth, just you, you for stop and go. Look, there's nothing I can do to help. You just carry on there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. He's yeah. already dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do but you it, ever get a chance to? You know, you're doing up to 800 kilometers a day, and it, it's you're moving constantly. The the environment is changing constantly. Do you get a chance at all to enjoy it? Do you get a chance to take it in and actually go, wow, look, I'm in a volcano today or I'm in the desert? Or is it just, you know, stress, camp? Yeah. Um, for Firstly, I need to recommend that anyone who's half an idea or an interest of going to Saudi Arabia, it is 
absolutely incredible. It's actually like a, a newfound planet or a newfound world because it's been so closed off to the world. It's at such little tourism uh, for the last 200 plus years. There's incredible geographical uh, features there. Like a lot of the areas we race through look like something out of a Star Wars film or a different planet. The rock structures, um, the mountains, the sand, the different terrain. Um, a lot of stuff we race through was through a lot of that. And you would catch yourself looking around thinking, this is incredible. And then your front wheel would bounce off a rock or something else. And <laughs> jolted back into sweetly reality. Sweetly reminded yeah, about yeah. the reality of what you need to focus on. But a few times I did catch myself looking around thinking, this is absolutely nuts. It's incredible. Um, so really, I'm, I'm even trying now to plan and do a little bit of an overland trip. I've got a little land cruiser that's built for, for camping. Um, and do a big trip around those areas, hopefully at a much, much slower pace <laughs> yeah, and absorb yeah. some of the, the natural beauty that's there. Um, and I think that is beginning to change now as they're beginning to invest in tourism and realize some of the stuff they have. But they have beautiful um, structures that are carved into mountains that, that pour down from the Jordan and the Petra area um, so of similar historic uh, significance, but really, really beautiful, really cool. And the vast spread of it is just blew my mind just to see the different climates the different temperatures mm. and the different terrains like there was stuff that looked like you were out here in the countryside with massive green rolling hills and then oh really because i kind of have, have this vision that it's just all just like sand and yeah, yeah. like yeah, and, and, i've and, gone and, through parts of the sahara on, yeah. on off-road events and it's just you feel like this is just it forever and, yeah. yeah and there's some areas that snow up in, in northern saudi and near jordan like really rocky high mountainous areas that were freezing on those days um, but I think that's why so, that so person when you've there. got those sort of because so roughly you're starting at what time in the morning um, so probably getting up between 3 and 4am every day yeah and then on the bikes every morning between 4 and 5 and so, you're so then how do you deal with what you're wearing and like in terms because it's going to be still really cold freezing yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah. a lot of mornings we get on the bike it was zero or, or just below zero mm. um, and it's designed so each day is designed with uh, road sections and competitive sections. So we'd leave the camp or the bivouac at say four or five a.m. You do it's usually time. So the first competitor is leaving the bivouac as soon as they arrive at the start line of the race section. Uh, the sun's just coming up. Okay. So a lot of that road section in the morning is in the dark, um, and then yeah, they have the competitive stage, which can be which can be anywhere from four or five hours to double digits in hours, and then you usually have a road section back as well. Those road section can road section can range from 20 or 30 kilometers i think the longest road section in the morning we had was over 500 kilometers so we drive 500 kilometers on the road and then race to the start of your event start of the race <laughs> god they make it so easy yeah. on you guys on a, on a single cylinder bike freezing yeah. your ass off but in, but that's the thing so like are you like are you layering up with clothes and then just dumping it at the start line or yeah, yeah so okay. there's a lot of strategy in that yeah and i'm very lucky i got to go last year and take loads of photos of what lads were doing and preparing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but wearing those sort of uh, delivery bike um, mitts, and mitts stuff on your, yeah, was yeah. incredibly helpful. Okay. Um, wearing layers strategically as well. Mm. Not that you kind of had to take everything off, but usually just one base layer. Yeah. Um, and then I managed to get my hands on a heated jacket okay. and then another windbreaker as well. Okay. Um, you yeah. take a lot of that stuff off then at the start line because you yeah. nearly be sweating by the time you get sure. there. And then you strategically carry... Um, I found a lot of lads were using uh, cycling uh, windbreakers or cycling rain jackets because okay, so they pack so bun, small bunch up, yeah, yeah, and you can yeah. just shove in a pocket on your right. jacket or on your bike. Yeah. Um, so just tiny little things like that, specifically getting wet 
Um, some of the days were a little bit wet. Last year was incredibly wet. Mm. Um, and if you're wet at 6 a.m. Yeah, and it. you've got a 12 hour race of racing behind Miserable. you ahead of you, you're, yeah, you're, yeah. you're in for. But, uh, but you're fully thing. armored up. You got, you got the neck brace, you got all that because you still got a lot of protective gear you got to wear huge amount well. of protective yeah. gear yeah so um do you do you, you don't use any airbag stuff yeah oh, so you do yeah, okay. yeah right so you shout out to megabikes uh, just around the corner from here based in dublin um they've sponsored me and came by or got on board with um all, all the alpine star gear um and that is specifically for motorbiking i know for a lot of car racing as well uh creme de la creme like gold yeah. standard um and it's mandatory now that we use an airbag system so that goes off like uh, uses the same material as a airbag in a car, yeah. But it's attached to a vest, mm. and so that goes up and, and acts as a neck brace, okay, and a back brace and chest and everything else. And we'll do you wear that instead? Because I used to wear the, yeah. the the usual sort of neck brace, but so do it's you replaced wear, the neck brace. It replaces no, that, yeah. okay. It basically right. is a donut that comes up, yeah. and, and holds your neck in place. Do you find that's more? Is it a bit more freedom then? Because I I used yeah. to remember I ha- I had that one that you know the one that goes the, the carbon your- one, and it was. It was nice to kind of have that, but yeah. also it was kind of a bit limiting. So Big time. And, and that airbag has gone off um, from Dakar a handful of times. But before Dakar, it saved my ass multiple yeah. times. Like okay. definitely saved broken backs, broken bones. Yeah, yeah. So it, it well worth um, the price of it and uses these little rechargeable, also replaceable cartridges okay, so you that can, go in. Yeah, and yeah. like it's it's probably the biggest leap forward in safety equipment on a motorcycle since they invented the helmet. Yeah, yeah. Collarbone breakages have huge. declined rapidly <laughs> yeah, yeah, as a result of it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you saying, you know, you had to stop and help a few people and call a helicopter. Yeah. Um, am I right in saying there was one incident where someone stopped to help you? Yeah. Not so much <laughs> with an injury or so, but... Uh, yeah. So um, there's a video that's gone viral on, on the Dakar. So I think it could be the most highest viewed uh, video on... Uh, the Dakar Instagram page with 11 million views. A sponsor's um, delight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it's it's only half the story. Um, on stage 10, I had a navigation, um, my navigation bracket, because we use these uh, digital iPads now, uh, broke up on me. So I lost an enormous amount of time dismantling, fixing, uh, taping up and strapping up my navigation tower. Um, and then on stage 11, started way back in the pack in the 90s or nearly in the, in the hundreds. Um, and got to a bottleneck section where there was an, a, a really tricky, rocky, hard enduro hill climb. And as I was going up it, um, there was a bike that fell off in front of me. I came to a stop and the cars caught us. So some of the fast competitor cars, um, which just, you know, do not care about bikes, were like nearly rodents on the road yeah. for a lot of them. And one of them had come up a massive sliding wall and knocked me off the bike um, and knocked me on my ass and further down the hill. Um, and kept plowing on and kept going um, and it's the second car behind me um, who was it? name names <laughs> name names <laughs> I think he was a, a Lithuanian competitor um, who is a b- bit of a character notorious okay. for stuff like that and there was a, a file and, and case open with the FIA um, but they really don't care they just want to win a Dakar yeah. at any cost and they'll go through or, or over bikes and that's the reputation that a lot of them have cars. Um, I was very lucky. The guy who was running in second place, a guy called Loic, uh, a French guy, um, was the co-driver and an ex-Dakar biker uh, behind me and saw me, how much I was struggling. At the time, I actually thought I broke my leg because um, I'd fallen on top of a massive rock and another massive rock had come up because um, this car literally went up on top of 
like probably a 70 or 80 degree wall um, with massive rocks sliding down on top of me. He hopped out of the car, helped me with my bike, get to just the last 20% of this technical hard enduro section, hop back in the car and then kept going. Uh, so it was That's extremely Dakar graceful. spirit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and proper Dakar spirit. That, yeah. um, so I was struggling. I was in the way. He didn't want to take huge risk going up this wall f- with more rocks or the yeah. car falling on top of him, crushing me, um, and got out of his car out of his own competitive time to help me get out of the way and hop back in the car and kept going. Yeah. So it was very lucky for Because this is your thing. We, we've talked a lot about you being on two wheels and doing this, but you're like, you've got cars, you've yeah. got trucks. Trucks, yeah. And like, you're all going on the same route. It's not yeah. like you're on a separate bike route. <laughs> no, no, no. You're all, so what, yeah. I mean, what's it like when they're sort of coming past you? Because there is a speed differential yeah. and there's a massive size differential <laughs> yeah. as well. Like, um, what's that like? It's incredibly intimidating. And the course um, degrades incredibly from the first 20 or 30 bikes. Probably have it pretty pretty consistent where it's, it's a nice enough course. As soon as the cars begin to catch the bikes, um, you're talking like most of the cars are probably seven, 800 horsepower, massive 37-inch wheels that absolutely chew the track up um, to race once the cars have began to ca- catch you and the dust that they create. Um, let alone the big trucks yeah. is adds such different elements and factors of safety and trying to hold good pace trying to hold good speed and getting out of their way they have a GPS device that buzzes you so buzzer goes off to let you know there's a car coming behind you some guys might give you a few hundred meters other guys literally give you less than 10-15 meters <laughs> Audi drivers <laughs> <laughs> they, um, they buzz you uh, uh, and you turn around and, and they're there and they're inches and they're not letting off they're not letting 180 off. kilometers yeah. an hour um so you can is, is there a general rule that every you always overtake on one side or is it no no, it's, no it's just, not really depending okay. on the track and you'll see horrendous videos of yeah. guys getting caught yeah. millimeters in between them um but most of the cars to be fair to them are sound you just get the odd driver that's a bit egotistical and doesn't mm. want to go off his racing line okay. whether you're on a bike or not right and some of them don't even buzz you um, they are supposed to implement nice. strict penalties from it. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of times when you're on a bike, the engine screening, you've got big earplugs in. Yeah, yeah. You can't hear the cars until they're beside you, until they're ahead right. of you. And the dust they create is incredible. It's like a smoke grenade's gone off. Yeah, yeah. You just can't see anything. And then, I, once, I, I, then have you got to go off your line then? Completely, to try and get yeah. Clear? And yeah. A lot of times completely off the track. Yeah. If we're in a very rocky area and there's a single track, um, that's the the bit that, that everyone wants to race on. Yeah. Um, the cars won't come off that. Right. They'll buzz you. Yeah. And they'll be on top of you until you come off the track. And a lot of times you have to come to complete standstill. If there's massive, big, jagged rocks, you have to come off the track at 90 degrees, hold your position, and then wait to go again. And a lot of times they kick up so much dust. Yeah. You sometimes have to wait 30 seconds to a minute for that dust to settle because a lot of the cars will chase each other in the dust as well. And if you're in a very dusty section and you're trying to follow the track or the, or the cars and another car comes, it won't see you. Okay. So you right. really have to be hyper aware of what's happening in front of you, what's happening behind you, and juggle constantly juggling all this risk while trying to ma- maintain pace. And once like, the cars, like you don't have enough to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just adds a different element. And once the cars go through, it's actually like a a war zone. Okay. There's yeah. holes and chunks, and you see rocks that you didn't think were possible to move or suddenly on the track because a truck went through or because yeah. a car went through. Um. So the quality of the track goes from like a freshly prepped motocross track. Yeah. 
to like a, a war zone. Yeah. And I, I mean, the battles. trucks probably don't even pick a line. They just no, they plow just go straight, straight as, as the crow flies. Yeah. I mean, I've been in one or two of those Camas trucks <laughs> yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. museums and stuff. And those yeah, things yeah. are just incredible. Yeah. Phenomenal things. There's yeah. videos online of them like displacing rivers. Yeah. Just, just yeah. The water they just, just don't moves. lift. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Like, the, the foot goes down at the start <laughs> yeah. of the stage and lifts at the end yeah. of the stage. And that's it. Yeah. That would be the dream, I think, to get a spin in one of them one day. Yeah. Just the way they can move is is incredible. The engineering behind them, and you know, so you've done all the racing. You get to the end, and you go, yeah, there's more racing to do. You know, the next stage and all that, and then you can look at next year and all that. Can you be a professional Dakar driver, or is this just a fundraise race? Fundraise race. Is there any type of reward? Is this a perpetual thing yeah. you can keep going, or is it like I've spent all my money and I've done it and it's done? <laughs> Um, there is there is a tier um, there's two different categories so there's Rally GP and then Rally 2 but we all race together Rally GP is reserved for uh, manufacturer teams so you have like the KTM group KTM uh, Husqvarna uh, Gas Gas you have the Honda uh, group um, I think the Yamaha group pulled out of it two years ago um, and then you have Sherco and Hero which I think is a subsidiary of Honda as well Indian manufacturer and they're probably the three or four competitive teams and they would be the only teams that offer salaries and packages uh, very similar to formula one where you'd be on an annual package to do the world championship on their bike and then there would be big bonuses for winning dakar winning the world championship or winning other world championship rounds but everyone after that is funded through sponsorships and through teams and everything else um to break into that category is incredibly difficult to get a seat or to get a ride and you're usually only really as good as your last race. It's an extremely cutthroat um, industry. If you usually have a crash or you don't finish a Dakar, you don't finish a Dakar competitively, you're gone. They've moved on to the next hot thing that's coming through the ranks. Don't do any favours for you. <laughs> yeah. So then if you want to compete again next year, yeah. you'd go start all over again. Not only fund your life and family, you've then to go, okay, I need to once again fundraise this yeah. whole race again yeah. and then start building the bike up again and strip it down and everything that's exactly. huge that's yeah. a really really big commitment <laughs> yeah i'd say half the challenge of dakar is putting the sponsorship the commercial um the mechanical the the organizational preparation ahead of it um just getting to the start line in my opinion is half the achievement is, is an enormous achievement and um, just being able to put all, all together that package is uh enormously time consuming enormously challenging enormously difficult um if i'd known that before i'd, I'd got into it probably wouldn't <laughs> have signed up but just i didn't realize how much work actually goes into the day i got to the start line i felt um that i'd accomplished so much because i could just focus on the racing and i put myself in a good position where i wasn't second guessing maybe i should have rebuilt the suspension didn't have enough cash for that or didn't think i i i there was something wrong with the bike mechanically. I could 100% feel that I put the bike on myself in the best position to give it my absolute best shot that I could within the factors that I could control. And when you cross that line after the last stage, yeah. and you go, this is, it's done. Yeah. What is it? Do you cry? Do you jump? <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually cried many times throughout the Dakar. There was tears of happiness tears of frustration, tears of sadness, tears of like being at absolute rock bottom. Um, but finishing stage 11, which I think was the 13th day, was one of the longer days. I think it was an 800 plus kilometer day. Um, and I finished it just in the dark. I started way back because I had that mechanical issue. 
had the other issue with a car knocking me off the bike, um, but managed to just get to the finish line. And I remember being under so much pressure and being so anxious for about the last two hours that day because I was calculating the distances that I'd have that I had left to finish. And it was a really technical uh, enduro style finish to the day and the sun was setting. So you were be really beginning to lose out in visibility, really beginning to lose out on what you could visually see, which means you have to ride so much slower. Um, so I was calculating my average pace and speed through certain sections and just managed to cross the finish line as the sun was setting. Goggles were off, even the clear lenses were off just to get the maximum amount that I could see. I managed to finish that day and that was the big last challenging day. And notoriously, stage one and stage 11 historically are designed to really knock you out. And if you're not supposed to be at Dakar, you sh- apparently sh- you will not finish either of those two days. Right. Um, which is so bittersweet for a lot of people that went out on stage 11 just to think that they were could see the finish line or could smell the finish line um, and, and couldn't get it through. And then stage 12 this year as well was supposed to be like, um, it's similar to the Tour de France, it's supposed to be like a victory lap, um, but they threw hell at us again in the middle of stage 12 which was a nice surprise for everyone. Um, but I was celebrating nearly and had felt that a lot of the hard work had been done at stage 11 and, and was in tears when I finished that I'd just been through such an, a lifetime of an emotional roller coaster yeah. in, in these 12 <laughs> ages days. Ages you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And now the finish line was, was so close and so near. Um, one of my other teammates actually broke his ankle on stage 11. Um, but just taped it up and kept going and finished stage 12. As um, you do. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Men that make do uh, extends to the bodies as well as the bikes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Will you be going for the eighth Irish medal? <laughs> yeah. I'm very keen to go back again. Um, this year, I, I tried to keep my ego in check as much as possible and focused 100% on a completion. Um, next year, I'd like to put together a package in preparation where I could go and try and be a lot more competitive. I think having the confidence of having one in my belt, um, the confidence of understanding what to expect, or probably better better phrases, not knowing what I'm going to expect, <laughs> or knowing that they're going to throw curveballs at us. And really, um, I found a lot of holes in my preparation and in my game plan, particularly with trials riding and hard enduro, which I thought was way left field of, of what Dakar racing and rally racing was, um, to really put a lot of training and implementation of those skills and not even those skills and those bikes, but being able to ride those technical sections on a big, heavy rally bike is nearly a skill in itself. Mm. Um, so I can be able to find pace there because I found myself probably looking a little bit into the analytics and being probably like 15, 20% of, off the pace in some of the sand and some of the dune areas where I spent a lot of training and then multiples of that off the pace in some of the technical hard enduro sections. So I think it's very clear for me where the work needs to be done to try and close that gap between a weekend warrior like I am now and some of the full-time professionals to really begin improving in positions and everything else. So a lot of work. I'm back to the drawing board, I think, after another week or two on where I can really get uh, huge gains in performance and huge gains in hopefully positioning. I imagine it doesn't get any less daunting, though. It's not like, <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah, off the back hard. Oh, your fifth one. Yeah, yes, yeah. child's play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, even when I met guys this year, um, like one of my really good friends, Simon Marsick, a Slovenian guy, was his 10th Dakar this year, and he was out on the first day. Really? Yeah, so oh, when I learned to go back to the bivouac yeah. and I heard about all these stories about these guys that were my heroes yeah. and guys that have done so many Dakars that had struggled so much, I found in a weird way a bit of comfort and a bit of, okay, maybe I am ready to be here. It's just been an incredibly tough, challenging day. Um, when you're going through and you go, oh, they're out, they've broken a leg or, you know, they've crashed, are you kind of going, uh, why am I still here? 
How, how is this uh, still going? In, there's a huge in, amount of imposter syndrome. I was going to say, do you, yeah, is there imposter syndrome? Thinking, have I got lucky here? Someone's yeah. going to yeah. jump out and just stick a stick in, in yeah. the I'm about to Bobby Ewing and walk <laughs> out of the shower. And... <laughs> and, and that really hit me, I think, just before rest day. Just the importance of finishing and really took it down a few notches, even into super eco mode. I'm just thinking I need to ride at a pace here where I'm 100% safe. I'm not taking any small risk or small... Um, unneeded uh, chance on mm. something that if I'm not sure what's a little bit further ahead just go that little bit slower um, in areas that I wasn't confident in um, yeah. and just being hyper aware and just keeping the ego check because it's so tempted to get caught up in racing yeah I remember you, you talked about this at, at the Helix when you you had a great night out there yeah. with a couple of past Dakar guys and, and it was that kind of yeah you were saying like you've got a you know you can ride faster mm. you know you have the skill to ride faster mm. but it's telling yourself to not wheelie across the finish line exactly yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. and that was probably one of the biggest challenges this year is constantly just being hyper aware of that ego and i think there's a lot of psychology in that as well just knowing not getting carried away especially i was raced with a lot of lads this year that flew past me that i knew i've beat at other races and i knew i could hold a better pace then but i was constantly thinking the most important here thing here is to finish and particularly with the sport and pressure that came from uh, the awareness that was raised and the following that it had. Um, I think there was a WhatsApp group with nearly a thousand people in it that were super keen on following every step and every move. Um, that came with a huge pressure as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to finish. I need yeah. to bring this home safely. Um, and luckily, unfortunately, I've been in an opportunity to do that now. So hopefully next year, there'll be a lot less pressure just to get to the finish line and probably a bigger opportunity to show my potential and my speed that's there. But I definitely think it was a bit like climbing the Oogie Mountain yeah. the first year it's important just to get to the top and come down and then look at more competitive routes or more competitive strategy how much of a buzz was it I'm going to say the morning after when you wake up and you've done it <laughs> like what was yeah un- unbelievable um, probably the like, biggest biggest accomplishment I ever felt like I- I'd achieved um, and I'm haven't had any kids yet or, or yeah. not married or anything yet so I can probably get away with yeah. saying that <laughs> yeah. just now <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but um no just w- what it costs in terms of time uh, financially emotionally it's a lot of big um, sacrifice to, to do this yeah H- huge huge sacrifice to uh, have a very patient and caring girlfriend mm. um, that afforded me a massive amount of flexibility um but just the sacrifice that I made even from my career focusing on this um, other elements of, of what it costs um, but it was 100% worth it in every manner and form it's really the biggest I think accomplishment I've made so far is just getting uh, to that finish line was so many times when I was full of self-doubt full of self-questioning thinking you haven't prepared well for this you're not ready for this you're not able for this um, but just been able to slowly build myself back up and get to the finish line and get to the finish line in, in a good um, safe competitive state um, was just mind-boggling just that feeling of thinking I've actually achieved something now and in this day and age you can nearly go out and buy anything or if you throw enough money at something you can yeah. achieve something yeah. but to get that medal and to know how, how difficult it is and how few of them there are yeah. held by Irish competitors uh, was huge held by anybody in general like <laughs> never mind yeah yeah so yeah it must be pretty you're, you're proud yeah, yeah, yeah just very happy but I, I know as well it's an individual sport it's it's uh and everyone looks at it as 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 you oh you're doing that on your own. I would not have been able to go anywhere near this with or achieve anything near close to this without the team that's been behind me. 
far far many people too many people to even mention yeah yeah um, but just to be back here now thanking a lot of these people um and so many people as well that just supported in such a some sometimes they thought in such a uh, non-significant way but it just all adds up so much to to really being able to go to put it together like i'm standing on enormous shoulders being able to go to dakar let alone complete it yeah and are you gunning for a seat at a a full team or just any way to get there is good just once once you're on that start line any way to get there is good um i'm still in the early stages of it even though i'm 30 years old now a lot of people think like that's come and gone for rugby or for football or for maybe ga and um, but particularly in rally racing and dakar racing if you look at carlos Sainz senior he's 62 he won his yeah. first or not his first his third or fourth dakar this year um there's definitely a huge amount of age and wisdom uh, that comes at rally racing particularly in the bikes like the probably prime age for for bike bike racers is probably between 30 and mid to late 30s mm. um so hopefully there's a nice age and, and, and career ahead of me in it um but i also understand the sacrifices and the cost of of getting there and staying there is is enormous um and the risk that comes with it along with it as well um there's enormous injuries that happen every year and and, and deaths so um it's really trying to gauge and juggle what's realistic and, and what potential I have uh, to keep going at it as well. I mean, you guys are more marathon runners than 100-meter sprinters. Like, that's the thing with, with exactly. like that age yeah. and that wisdom of knowing. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot yeah. of it's in egos. You see a lot yeah. of quick guys come in in their early 20s yeah. and they win a stage or they win a section. They get carried away. Get booked off. Get booked um, off and yeah. it's game I mean, over. And when Dakar bites, it bites. It bites, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, look, I just, I'm in awe, absolutely in awe of... of a single side anybody that's done the Dakar it's even better that somebody from Ireland's done it it's phenomenal um, if people want to follow you what's the best way to keep keep tabs on what you're doing I'm um, trying to make a big effort on the Instagram so it's at oran.okelly um, on Instagram I think it's the same on, on Facebook at Oren O'Kelly um, and making a big effort with that as well and we've got um, Eamon Corkin who, who came out with this, this lad from Mayo who's making a full documentary on the full story as well and um, so hopefully getting that up and running maybe by the end of the summer um, yeah. so that could be cool and something interesting to watch and that really is going to show everyone I think um, the whole story about the preparation the ups the downs the tears um, some of the ugliness behind it um, but really give everyone a back row or sorry front row seat and a full backstage view of everything that went on to get to the start line and ultimately uh, to get to the finish line super tough well I mean look bravo that's I don't think I've seen anybody do so much work to earn a medal. <laughs> Very well earned. Uh, yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming and join us. I know you're on a plane back to Dubai fairly a little bit later, so really appreciate your time. Um, I hope everybody who listened to this found that fascinating. I did. It's amazing insight to get a hold of, you know, somebody and get an idea of what goes through an effort like this. Cormac, you're not going to take the track or anytime soon, or. Um. I'd love a go in an old Peugeot. Uh, <laughs> the, the Barago models were cool. So yeah. if I could have one of them, that'd be cool. But uh, yeah. to even just sit in the room with you and you know, you're know you holding a medal that there's as many of as there are wonders in the world. <laughs> you know, there, there's the same amount of Irish held Dakar medal. That's really cool. Yeah. You know, we if you're into cars, the Dakar is a name, you know, you might not know what it does, but, you know, you know what it is not only have you gone and competed but you came back with the medal it's just cool yeah <laughs> thank you yeah well done well done yeah. thanks Cormac and Dave really really appreciate the opportunity to be on here and, and share a little bit of my story and 
hopefully it's the first chapter in, in more to come yeah Dakar 2 we can't, <laughs> yeah, can't yeah. wait to tune hear in it. next year <laughs> yeah. to see how it goes <laughs> Um, well look that's been uh, a slightly longer than normal 50 to 70 podcast I hope you enjoyed it uh, as ever brought to you in association with Trey and uh, yeah Oren thanks so much for coming in really appreciate it oh, thank you gents <laughs>